teaching. Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, one Sunday per year, and we have an opportunity to look at some passages that bring very intentional focus to that. And in starting off this morning, I wanted to read first out of Lee Strobel's book. This one's out of The Case for Christ. Got a few, few paragraphs here I want to start off with. Listen to what this says regarding what he calls circumstantial evidence. No witnesses watched Timothy McVeigh load two tons of fertilizer-based explosives into a Ryder rental truck. Nobody saw him drive the vehicle to the front of the federal building in Oklahoma City and detonate the bomb, killing 168 people. No video camera captured an image of him fleeing the scene. Yet a jury was able to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that McVeigh was guilty of the worst act of domestic terrorism US in U.S. history. Why? Because fact by fact, exhibit by exhibit, witness by witness, prosecutors used circumstantial evidence to build an airtight case against him. While none of the 137 people called to the witness stand had seen McVeigh commit the crime, their testimony did provide indirect evidence of his guilt. A businessman said McVeigh rented a rider truck. A friend said McVeigh talked about bombing, about bombing the building out of anger against the government. And a scientist said McVeigh's clothes contained a residue of explosives when he was arrested. Prosecutors buttressed this with more than seven Hundred exhibits ranging from motel and taxi receipts to telephone records to a truck key to a bill from a Chinese restaurant. Over 18 days, they skillfully wove a convincing web of circumstance from which McVeigh was woefully unable to extricate himself. Circumstantial evidence is made up of indirect facts from which inferences can be rationally drawn. And I have a feeling that there's not one, not one eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ here in this room with us this morning. It's a pretty reasonable statement, right? But I also have a feeling that if I were to ask for witnesses to even just raise a hand this morning, witnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ has changed your life. You don't have the eyewitness proof, but you know that you know what you know. How many witnesses could we parade across here this morning that would give testimony that would be enough to bear proof for us this morning that this Jesus, this Christ, who claimed to be who he claimed to be, was exactly who he claimed to be. You see, on October 12th of 1988, I didn't see Jesus with my physical eyes. I just know I was sitting in a garage apartment somewhere all alone, contemplating the big questions of life and not thinking there was much purpose or hope in life, when all of a sudden my thoughts were arrested with thoughts of the Lord. 
Oh, I grew up hearing about the Lord my entire life. I got drugged to church my entire life. I walked the aisle. I said the prayer. I did everything my denomination told me to do, but I was as lost as the next man. Confession of the lips does not a conversion make. But on October the 12th of 1988, there was an explosion that went off in my heart. And I knew beyond a doubt that there had to be a God in heaven and that Jesus Christ was his son who came to earth and died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the grave to give me life. And I left that garage apartment on October 12th of 1988, and I've never been the same man since. I might be what you call circumstantial evidence to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do you think? Well, how about you? Can I get a witness? I could do this all day long. Is anybody ready to come up? Who wants to come up? Who's ready to testify of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ? The reality is, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ indeed brings us to the core of our Christian faith. Because without a resurrection of Jesus, all the claims of Jesus would be false be untrue. In Matthew 16, 13, and again in Matthew 16, 15, Jesus asked his disciples some very pointed questions. And this is where I want to start us off with this morning, looking at the Word of God. A couple of very pointed questions indeed. Matthew 16, 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So on this occasion in their relationship, they've been together probably a little over two years at this time, he starts asking them a very pertinent question, is who, who do the people within the nation of Israel, who are they saying that the Son of Man is? Now, perhaps we remember um, the connection that is to be made here. We're not... Um, probably as familiar with it as they would have been. But this question of Jesus, of who is this son of man, was a very known commodity within the Jewish culture, and it took them all the way back to the prophet Daniel. About 600 years before the life of Christ, and Daniel, the prophet, had a vision of one like a son of man. And he was coming up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, he was presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him, to the Son of Man, to him was given dominion. Tell me who you think this Son of Man figure sounds like from Daniel's vision. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, as we stand here about 2,600 years from the time of Daniel's prophecy, we have not seen any kingdom such as this, one that has ultimate dominion, one that has not passed away, and one that will not be destroyed. We haven't seen that yet empirically on planet Earth, have we? We we just haven't. So we know that the vision that Daniel saw regarding this one like the Son of Man was future in his time, in his day, and we also know that it's future still 
in our day. The Jewish nation was very familiar with this information from Daniel. And so when Jesus came with this question of his disciples of saying, you know, who is the Son of Man? Who are the people saying that the Son of Man is? He's interested in what the current Jewish thought was with regard to this vision that Daniel received 600 years before his own life. This Messiah figure, this one from the ancient of days who will indeed have dominion, establish dominion and glory. Now, you perhaps remember when we started going through the book of Matthew, John the Baptist came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophet. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 6, he came as a forerunner to the Messiah. He came as a forerunner to this individual whom the entire Jewish nation was putting the weight of dominion and glory and kingdom that won't be destroyed. There's a lot of prophets that spoke with regard to who this Son of Man was and the things that he would do. And it said that there was one who would come before him who would make straight the way of the Lord. And we see in Matthew's gospel earlier on that it was John the Baptist who clearly, Matthew and all the gospels, as a matter of fact, articulate that this John the Baptist, he's the one that came in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, one who would make straight the way of the Lord, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. And as such, we saw there in Matthew's teaching, it said many, many came for John's water baptism of repentance, right? We saw that. As a matter of fact, we saw that some of the religious leaders even came, and John kind of scolded them a little bit. Remember what John said to them? He said to these religious leaders who were coming, <clears throat> he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John was clearly identifying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the one that he was the forerunner for, that there was going to be the establishment of a kingdom and wrath was coming with it. Well, when we read the, the, the New Testament and we read the information regarding his second advent, we see that that's very much the case. There is going to be wrath that comes from heaven against an unbelieving world. John was clearly making those two connections together when he was saying that when he finally baptized Jesus and heard the voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So in verse 14, back in Matthew 16, notice what the disciples say. They said, some say John the Baptist, which is interesting. Notice the the distance between this for John the Baptist here and others so we don't get to know who these others were but we see we see Elijah one of the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah one of the Old Testament prophets but we see with John the Baptist we see this a closing of the gap in the scuttlebutt the narrative within the Jewish community like there's a closing of the gap you can almost feel if you try to walk a minute in their shoes, you can almost feel that they were perhaps feeling a little bit of angst over the fact that it's been about 600 years since Daniel gave this prophecy, and we're tired of being under the heel of the Roman government. If you take John the Baptist out, there, who's the son of man? Perhaps it was Elijah, perhaps it was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They're going way back, but John the Baptist kind of cinches that up for them and brings them perhaps a sense of imminent reality that perhaps the, this one, this Messiah is, is coming. Perhaps his time is 
indeed at hand. And one of the things that this verse also lets us know very clearly is that those within the Jewish community at large were looking. They hadn't completely forgotten about these realities. 600 years can bring in a lot of harsh winds that can blow into lives and many generations come and many generations go. But we see that perhaps they were still looking. Are we still looking? Are we still looking for that second advent? Perhaps over the last 2,000 years, many generations have come and many have come and gone. People are saying, hey, it's, it's the same today as it was then. Nothing new under the sun. Are we certain about this? <laughs> are we sure that he's coming? Can I get a witness? Have you seen him with your eyes? How do you know? Because he's alive. And he's placed that empirical knowledge and data in a heart that got changed at conversion by mercy and grace when God the Father freely opened up spiritually blind eyes to see who Jesus really is. Amen? I guess I could stop right there and just pray. That was pretty good. Y'all ready to go and eat some more? I got about another hour's worth of material here. Notice how Peter answers. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus goes from who do they say that I am to you. Well, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And notice how quickly Peter gets this. Peter says, Notice the mistake on my overhead. Sorry. Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. No, I didn't. I got that right. I got that right. My eyes are tricking me. I apologize. I can be OCD on some things. Not everything, but some things. It's like right there in that moment, Peter got it. How did Peter get it? Hadn't Peter been with him for some two years now? Hadn't Peter taken John's baptism? Hadn't Peter been following Jesus around, seeing Jesus do what only God could do for the past two years? Peter gets it in this moment. And Jesus says to him in verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Peter, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Jesus says that Peter's understanding that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of Man, wasn't an understanding derived from human ingenuity. No, such precise insight as this was a work of God the Father in Peter's heart and mind. I think that's clearly what Jesus is articulating to Peter regarding his statement. And this is why we can affirmatively say, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is why we also say that no one can fake Christianity forever, nor should they even try. A love for Christ and his church is nothing less than a work of God that causes a person 
to see spiritual realities differently than they've ever seen them before. And as a result of seeing spiritualities different than they've ever seen them before, they're willing to do things like Peter did. They're willing to do things like the rest of the disciples did that would make absolutely no sense to human reason. Why would you throw your life away? Why would you not live your best life now so that you can instead follow this man from Galilee and all the hardships and the suffering that might come along with it? Why would you do that? Well, it's because Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Son of Man. He was the Son of the living God in such heart change is that which is only sustained through divine intervention. And when God does this, that heart change is thus sustained throughout one's life because it's a work of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not a work of man. And then Jesus lets Peter and the rest of us know that it's this very foundation that what we just saw happen in Peter's life, the foundation of saving faith, is the same kind of change that God's going to be making in everybody's life, and that's how he's going to ultimately build his church, is on professions just like Peter's. We see this in verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock, upon this rock of Peter's confession, which comes by what Jesus said God the Father did, he, he's the one that revealed this to you, Peter. So upon that kind of foundation, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I love this last little statement right here where it says the gates of Hades. Got this visual image of gates of Hades that are kind of like thrown open wide. I don't, it's a, it's a strange phrase, and the gates of Hades will not overpower this. And I was just thinking about um, a song that my son sent to my wife from a guy named Lecrae about deconstructionism heard it for the first time yesterday. There's a lot of that deconstructionism that's going on these days. Uh, we were watching a Food Network program, and my wife says to me, isn't it sad that Alton Brown deconstructed his faith? You, know, you almost see it's like people who become very important people with wealth becomes like a high tower to them, their security. Why would they need, why would they need God? They've got everything they need. You know, they, there's, there's these... Um, there just seems to be this movement these days, and I listened to the, those lyrics of, Cray, of, of Lecrae, who had been hurt, etc., whatever. But this statement right here, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What God the Father rots within the heart of a person, Philippians 1.6, he who began that work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The gates of Hades may try to overpower it and cause you to walk away from it. But they can't. They cannot, they will not overpower what God does when he brings conversion into the life of one of his kids. And it's upon that kind of a rock, upon that kind of foundation of divine sovereign grace, Jesus says the church will be built one person, one conversion at a time. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of this would just be 
hypothetical and meaningless because he wouldn't be alive. Jesus himself gave a very strong, if you will, affirmation regarding this watershed issue, regarding his resurrection. He affirmed it himself, and Matthew recorded it in chapter 17. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, this is getting towards the end of his three-year ministry, the Son of Man, clearly identifying himself with the Son of Man from Daniel 7 again, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus wasn't saying there's somebody else that's going to be delivered into the hands of man, some Son of Man. He knew he was the one being delivered. He is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 without question. And he was delivered into the hands of men. And they did kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, just like he said he would do. And they were deeply grieved over this knowledge. Luke records it in his gospel as well. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. What an amazing statement. All the things that are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. We have, we have such empirical data, we can go back and we can find what all the prophets said with regard to the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus Christ, and He fulfills those things perfectly. How could that be? Time and chance, words just got blown together on a page, the evolution of books, words, letters just somehow landed by, next, by each other and it, made, and it made sense. Well, of course not. I do feel a little better, though. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. We see this same affirmation from Jesus in all of the Gospels. All the Gospel writers affirm Jesus' attestation to the fact that he would be killed, handed over to men, buried and rise again on the third day, an undeniable claim from Jesus himself for his resurrection. It's without question that the New Testament, the emphasis that it puts on Christ's death as well as his resurrection are inseparable. And again, without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have no significance at all. You've all heard of C.S. Lewis, and you've probably all heard of C.S. Lewis's The Lord Lunatic Liar, right? This is, what he, this is how he said it himself. Lewis said this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. <laughs> that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or perhaps the man who says he's a woman. I hate to be so politically incorrect these days, but why not say you're a poached egg? If you feel like a poached egg, can't you be a poached egg today? Well, the obvious answer, if you want to comply, is yes. You can be anything you want to be today. And, the, and we're the ones that look silly. Because we believe in the Bible. We believe in history and time and, and 
the, the witnesses of the prophets and how what they predicted came true. We're, we're the ones that are called silly. I'm sorry, a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your own choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Have I asked you yet this morning, who do you believe that Jesus is? I'm going to a few more times, so be thinking about it. The Apostle Paul was on trial for his life. He said this, these were the charges that were summed up against him, and we have a compilation of different places through the book of Acts, but he said, Brethren, I'm, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul clearly, who had an opportunity of being an eyewitness to the risen Jesus, made this very logical decision based on sight, not on faith, but on sight, that he was indeed resurrected. He was indeed the Son of Man, the risen Lord. Again in Acts 17, Paul said, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Remember, I said that when he comes back the second time, he, wrath was coming with him, right? He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God's proof to all people everywhere and for all time is the resurrection of Jesus Christ back from the dead. Amen, church? And since the resurrection is true, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, God has fixed a day of which only he knows, in which he will judge the world of people against the standard of righteousness that only his son, Jesus Christ, has attained. And all who are found possessing the righteousness of Jesus on the basis of faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not on the basis of works of one's own righteousness. When you come to Jesus empty-handed and say, all of me for all of you, and you submit to his lordship, and you see with your spiritual eyes that he is the Son of Man, the King of glory, there's a divine imputation of eternal life, and the gates of hell will not overpower such a faith. It can't. It will persevere all the way to the end. Paul's affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is most clearly seen in 1 Corinthians 15. There's some very just pointed statements that the Apostle Paul makes that I think it's good for us to rehearse at least on an annual basis to be reminded of, but I'm also reminded of the fact that it's almost 11.30, so I'm hurrying. We sang a lot of songs today, didn't we? We did. We did. We sang a lot of songs today. <clears throat> Royce is regathering his voice here. It was all great, though. 
Let's do this real fast. Notice in verses 3 and 4, we see the Apostle Paul stating an early creed within the church, something that would have been passed around from church to church. That would have been an early creed within the church. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. See, this was something he received, that, that Christ died for our sins, and this is the creed, that died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So what we see here that is of first importance out of these realities is one, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God who died on the cross, that he was buried and that he was raised back to life on the third day. These are the essential aspects of the early creed to the, to the churches that was spreading around there in the earliest days of the ancient church. And fourthly, we see at the very end of this that this was just as it should be according to the Scriptures. That none of this stuff happened in some dark corner. It wasn't made up in the secret corners. That we have the Old Testament Scriptures. We have the Old Testament prophets. We had God giving them visions. They were writing things, and it all pointed to the reality of these truths that we see here before us today. And then in verses 5 through 6, Paul makes mention of the eyewitnesses that also gave testimony to the risen Christ, his resurrection. And he appeared to Cephas, and this is post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to, to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, which means that you could probably go and hunt some of them out. Had you been in the church of Corinth and you received this letter, whom remain until now, you might have been an investigator and gone out and started looking for people. Were you one of the 500 who saw Jesus alive? Perhaps. But some have fallen asleep, not all. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me, to the Apostle Paul. Paul is making a claim that Jesus' post-resurrection appearance, that he was a part of that. That's why Paul knows not by faith, Paul knows what he knows by sight. When we read the Apostle Paul talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's not giving us something that was by faith. He's giving us something that he saw by sight. What else would lead a man to do the things that the Apostle Paul did? To be so convinced... Well, God opened his spiritual eyes, yes, but he also saw he had this double whammy going on. The apostle Paul was afflicted for life. He had to be who he was. And what was he? He was a born-again Christian. What are, what are we, the church? <laughs> We're born-again Christians. Didn't we sing a song that said, we, we believe though not seeing? Isn't that great? We, we believe on the basis of faith. We, we get to read the eyewitness testimonies. But our lives have been changed. We're some of that empirical, non-eyewitness evidence that yields truth to the claim that Jesus made that he was indeed risen from the grave. And we see when the apostles went preaching, this very knowledge was to those to whom he appeared to, whether it's James or Peter or Paul. We see Peter here in Acts 2. Notice this is Peter preaching one of his first sermons. He says, God has resurrected this Jesus to life. One of the first sermons that Peter starts preaching there on the day of Pentecost deals with what? The resurrection of Jesus. And we are all witnesses to the fact. These were eyewitnesses to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, in Acts 3, uh, Peter says to, to, the, to the Jewish crowd and others there, he says, you killed the source of life whom God raised 
from the dead. We are witnesses to this fact. And again in Acts 10 to Cornelius, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter affirms his post-resurrection preaching was centered in nothing less than the risen life of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. God raised him. He became visible. We saw with our very eyes. The apostle Paul uh, incorporates this into his preaching when he goes to Rome. Paul said to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is there salvation apart from the knowledge and belief that God raised Jesus from the dead? Paul would say absolutely not. Unless you're just kind of interested in making up your own salvation story and you, you and God have things worked out and he gives you divine revelation just for you, of course. Then, you know, then you're going to close your eyes for the last time, step across that veil and find out for certain whether or not you had that special deal with God or not. I would encourage you to go with the special deal that he laid right through here in the scriptures upon his son, that, there's, that he is the, the way, the truth, the life, the only way, and that he was risen back to life from the dead. Oh, Paul was a witness. He was a witness of him being risen back from the dead. Amen? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Well, we could go on longer. The apostle caps this off. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's talking to those in Corinth. Obviously, there were some in Corinth that were questioning the resurrection. Is questioning the resurrection a valid thing to do? Is questioning the fact that a dead man rose back to life again, would that be a valid thing to do? Well, of course it would be, because dead people don't come back to life unless God does something very miraculous. And so there were those in Corinth who weren't eyewitnesses, and they were kind of saying, wait a second, we've, we've heard of some pretty far-fetched things, but of a dead man coming back to life again. And the Apostle Paul, as he works through 1 Corinthians, is very clear with them. And he says, listen, if the resurrection wasn't true, we as Christians are the most to be pitied among all people for having believed in something if it's a hoax. I mean, the Apostle Paul puts the cookies on the lower shelf there in 1 Corinthians 15. Read it today, study it today, think deeply about its impact upon your life today. Listen, the Apostle Paul was, what percentage sure that Jesus rose from the grave? 100%. Did he have good reason to believe that? Absolutely, he was an eyewitness to the fact. And we know the Apostle Paul endured major hardship for the rest of his life because of his belief in Jesus and in the resurrection. And that he was ultimately tortured and beheaded by Nero for his confession in Christ and his lordship. History goes on to tell us that of the disciples who also testified these witnesses to the resurrection, they lived lives that absolutely had no payoff for themselves from any human perspective. 
they went around and they preached what they had seen and heard, and they were faithful witnesses to what they had seen and heard. They often went without food. They slept exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned, and eventually most of them were executed for their belief in Jesus. As a matter of fact, history tells us that Matthew was killed in Ethiopia as a result of a sword wound. History tells us that Mark died in Alexandria of Egypt after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead because of his preaching, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Luke was hanged in Greece because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus to the lost. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because of his faith in Jesus Christ. James, Jesus' brother and elder and leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown down from the top of a temple Having survived the fall, having been thrown down, it says that the enemies of the gospel then came down and beat James to death with clubs. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Rome for his faith in Jesus. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to Asia. He was whipped to death for his continual preaching of the risen Christ. Jude was killed having been shot through with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas the traitor, was stoned and then beheaded. Paul was tortured when he was prior to being killed, and then he was beheaded by the Emperor Nero while in Rome. For what, a hoax? Do you think all these eyewitnesses got together and said, hey, we got to keep this under wrap. We, we know this isn't true. We have empirical data that we're making this up, but let's go all the way to the end, baby. All the way to the end of the line. You ready? Put it in. One, two, three, death. I just have a feeling that you're not willing to die for something that you absolutely know isn't true, right? I mean, you can say, well, in Islam, they have martyrs. They die because what they believe in, they believe it's absolutely true. We just believe that it's absolutely false because we hold to these scriptures as being a word from God. And we have eyewitnesses who are there who observed the risen Jesus with their own eyes, who then threw their lot in and were all horribly treated, mistreated, and killed for their faith. It's quite different indeed. I can tell you there's no other adequate explanation that I can conceive of other than the fact that they had without doubt seen the risen Christ alive from the dead, absolutely sure, just like they claimed to have done. They were willing to die for what they had seen with their own eyes, what they had touched with their hands, and they were in that unique position to not only believe, but to know with 100% certainty. And when you've got 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain and everything to lose, who all agreed they observed something with their own eyes and suffered tremendous hardships for it, you can bank on the fact that what they are testifying true must be absolutely accurate. Jesus rose from the grave just like he said he would. Amen. And if that's true, he's coming again just like he said he would. Amen. Do you believe this? This is what Christians believe. This is what historic Christians have believed. Historic Christianity holds to for the last 2,000 years. So church, if this is your contention and your conviction and your confession, let me encourage you to let your light shine in such a way that no contradictions exist between your profession and your practice. We are living in a time in our culture 
when darkness is trying to quell the light of the gospel within our land like we've never seen before. And it's not just about tolerance. It's about the subjugation of the Godhead and what he made, being male and female and making it very good. It's an attack upon that. It's doctrines of demons is what it is. Fear not the world, nor the cancel culture, nor the the woke culture. For what more can they do to us than has already been done to those who have gone before us in the faith? We need instead fear God, the one who can cast body and soul into hell forever. And as I said earlier, if you're here this morning, and perhaps you've yet to place your faith and trust in this one who rose from the dead, Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man, let me encourage you to give strong consideration of your ways today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but might have life, life everlasting. Let's make certain that it's true of each of us before we leave here this morning. Amen. Today is a day of salvation, and salvation belongs to the Lord. If you sense that God has opened up spiritually blind eyes that now see Jesus and his gospel in ways you'd never seen him before, I'd love to meet with you right down here. I'll, I'll talk to you as long as we need to talk. You can come find Brother Royce or Pastor Matt. We will talk to you and share Christ and what it looks like to have a walking, abiding relationship with him according to the scriptures, and that's what we do. Jesus said, when you go out into this world, we're going out to make disciples. It's all about being a follower of Christ. Amen? Church, let's pray.